Hello, everyone. How you doing? Welcome to another episode on Living on the Edge of Chaos podcast. I am here with another guest that I am just super, super jacked to have this conversation with. I have been following her work, I say for quite some time, but I think with a lot of the recent guests, it's it's probably been realistically over the course of the last year as I have fallen in love with AI and trying to have that cautious optimism of the good, the bad, and everything else in between. And 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 our guest today is someone who really, really brings a lens and a perspective that I am really, really excited about and probably where more of my passion lies with AI, and that's that human side of things. And she she speaks to it so elegantly, way better than I do. And so I'm excited for this podcast, like all guests, to learn, but also just to, to hear more about what we have going on and, and the work that she's doing. And we're here today with, with, with Lori. And Lori, you have, holy cow, an incredible backlist of things that you have done and explored and sharing and speaking and doing and CEO. And we'll talk soon about a book. I mean, I don't, I don't know how you have found a way to craft 40 hours in a 24 hour day. Maybe that's uh, an AI trick you can share, but you know, to start, who are you? What do you do? And what in the world do you got going on? Which is quite a bit. Oh, thank you so much for having me, Aaron. Um, and the way I'd introduce myself these days is I'm Lori Mazer. I teach AI with a human touch. Um, and that's exactly it. I mean, I, um, I love speaking to this audience because so much of who I am was shaped when I was a kid um, and by a, a really amazing group of K through 12 teachers. Um, and so, you know, I love that my life is coming full circle to, you know, at age 50, really being able to bring out the kid in me again um, through what I call chaos machines. And I love the title of your podcast um, and and I'm so excited for our conversation. Yeah, I love that word chaos machine. We're going to have to definitely unpack that. And, you know, if those listening can't see it, but as she's talking about this, she just has the biggest smile on her face when she's talking about it, bringing out the child in her. Um, it, it, it definitely is. And I want to talk more about what you mean about that, that human touch. But before we do that, talk to me a little bit about your journey of how you got to this spot. Because it's something I've been asking a lot of guests in the recent episodes. And I really love it because I think it just helps us gain a, a better grounding of how you, where people are, where they are when I get a chance to speak with them. And so, I mean, I've, I've, I've been reading your, your, your bio on your, your website and different things like that. You've done some incredible stuff. So talk a little bit about how did you get here? What's your, what's your, you know, my nerdy Spider-Man, what's your origin story um, of how Lori got to this point where you are exploring AI with the human touch? Yeah. I mean, honestly, it's like a strategic accident. Um, <laughs> and I, you know, I think so much of, of what I'll talk about is this like world of cognitive dissonance, right? Mm. So I was, as a young child, I was in the theater. I was super creative. I loved performing on stage. 
I was a dancer, like very much in my body. Um, but I also had a really active mind and I was just so curious. So by the time I got to college, um, I was trying to figure out like what job I could have in the creative fields that would also satisfy my father, who is an engineer, um, his interest in me having health insurance. Uh, <laughs> and, and at the time, you know, this is like in the early 90s. Um, Architecture was the one place where I found that I could be both a math nerd um, and a social science thinker and a creative person. Um, and so it really was my sweet spot in terms of education. And I went on to have a career as an architect. I've like, you know, worked in a big architecture firm in New York and um, worked on plans and buildings and master plans. Um, and that led me into universities. Um, and, you know, I've always loved the the process of knowledge creation and my, my mother's an educator. So this is also a passion um, uh, kind of family history for me. And I was in charge of operations, right? Mm -hmm. Making sure buildings were functioning, making sure everybody had the tech they needed in order to perform their job at work and students their job as, um, as learners. And I was at the City University of New York during the pandemic. Um, and, you know, that was a eclipsing experience for all of us. And like many people, I was just so exhausted after the three years of enduring that I call it the like triathlon of, um, <laughs> of the pandemic that I, I needed a break. And when I took that break, it just happened to be when these AI image generators were coming out. I started playing with Mid Journey and it was so magical to me. And it gave me, as I said earlier, this ability to be a kid again and to also really be hands-on with making things because you know, as your career progresses and you move into management and you get more responsibilities, you're directing other people, but you aren't necessarily doing it yourself. And so I could now use this language that I had been honing over years about how to communicate with people. I could now speak to a machine and evoke images of buildings, of fashion, of cars. And I could put all those things together and develop, you know, kind of things that that no one had ever seen before. And so I loved this and honestly had no idea in September of 2022 that this was a career path. Mm. Um, right. I thought I was just kind of like blowing off steam and getting ready to like jump back into consulting in universities. And so by right before Christmas, um, I got a, got a, I think on LinkedIn, a notice that um, an organization called the Ed3DAO was hiring an instructor, an AI instructor to teach high school students. Mm. And I had never taught in my life. So I, you know, I looked at this job and I'm like, you know what, I, I'm looking around and I don't see anybody else who would be as qualified. So I'm just going to throw my hat in the ring. And I like whipped off my application, had an interview in January. And honestly, that was the beginning of this new career. And oh, wow started and it just hasn't stopped. <laughs> <laughs> and here you are. Yeah. So I, I, I'm interested. You've got your, your background in, in theater and your architecture and your design and you, you know really that kind of creative spirit um as you talked about there in, in your journey and i know this is like all the urgent talk when it comes to education around ai and it's always you know and sometimes i feel like 
how do we get beyond this? But I am curious because you do have that kind of foundation in, in, in your, your backlog, you know, how do you process that or how do you address that the whole topic of plagiarism, copyright, things like that? Yeah. And, and, you know, cause it's, as I know, as I'm going into schools and working, that always becomes, you know, that, that urgent thing, like, Oh, this is, this is great, cool, exciting, scary, everything else, but that cheating piece. And so um, kind of selfishly, how do you approach that? Because I mean, I'm coming at it from, you know, that kind of academic education. I taught my whole life and here I am now teaching and working with educators. You're coming at it from that kind of creative backdrop and, and working through those different institutions. You know, where do you land and, and what, what's some of your reasoning behind that? And I know you just wrote a piece on it. I'll make sure I include that for those yeah, listening yeah. in the show notes, but I, you know, what do you well, got for there? It, it, your question is perfectly timed. The reason uh, is that the U.S. Copyright Office is now seeking public opinion on copyright. So when your episode goes up, people will have until Halloween to get their comments in. And I would highly encourage everybody, you don't have to be an expert here. You just have to have an opinion, mm -hmm. right? And hopefully an educated one. So what I've tried to do over the past four weeks in my newsletter um, is really just dive into all sides of the issue and um, and really to try and suspend my own judgment um, until I'd finished doing the research. So that really is my first approach is, you know, you can, um, as much as I love the technology and what it can do, I also recognize that it's messy and it's complicated. And the way these models have been trained was without consent of creators. And <laughs> I am somebody who advocates for creators as one. Um, and so, you know, finding that right balance where we are respecting the copyrights that existed before this technology came into place, and then also enabling future creators to have rights to their own work, like that's really complicated. Now, it could be an evolutionary change. So, you know, we could look back and say, this is just a tool like the camera. And, you know, how does existing copyright law apply in that case? Mm. And, you know, are the laws that are on the books sufficient if we then like try and look at it through that lens of parallelism? But we also can say, you know what, this is nothing like a camera because a camera like didn't have didn't have to be trained, right? And these AI <laughs> models need to be trained. And so, you know, that like the fact that the training data is still not quite resolved yet <laughs> um, is I think the thing that that trips everybody up. And until we really come to understand whether culturally we want to agree that anything on the internet is fair use, um, right? Which would be a huge leap. Um, you know, we're going to be in some some messy waters. So I don't have the answers, but I, I certainly um, know, you know, the wide, the wide number of viewpoints. And it's a global issue as well. I mean, our community, at least um, the community I'm on in LinkedIn, um, is 15,000 creators from around the globe, Right. And half the time, I don't even know where people are from because we're all like omnipresent, right, during um, at least my waking hours. Yes. So, you know, it's um, it's really amazing. And I think, you know, I've also really come to appreciate how existing copyright law works globally because there are a number of treaties in place that allow different um, countries to respect each other's rules. Um, and then, you know, we have some countries that don't play by the rules. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I, 
I, I love that answer because I think it's it's the very essence of what we're trying to instill in our students in the classroom of how do we do the proper research to form, you know, at some point an opinion, but at least you have some sound judgment behind it um, before, like we see so much in, unfortunately, of just when we opened up social media and we weren't quite sure how to process that. And now everyone can chime in on anything without you know, maybe really thinking through those ramifications. And I think that's really important. And I, I think it, it builds in a lot to, you know, your kind of, your, your your platform, so to speak, you know, teaching AI with that human touch of understanding all the various roles. You know, I sit there and go, man, I can create things that I can see in my head. I may not have defined motor skills to create myself, but I know what I want. And I'm, it, I, I feel happy. I feel like I am a creator. And then I read about authors who are like, but that's my, like, people are taking my work. And I'm like, I respect that too. And so there is like, <laughs> you know, it, it kind of depends on, on how you come through that. And I often joke, you know, it, it comes up in trainings too. And I'm like, you know, about the copyright and the cheating and all that. And I'm like, but how many of you have copied a pasted uh, image into a slide deck without permission? Like, we're all guilty. Like, I understand yeah. what you're saying. But do our words and our actions, you know, always line up? And so I think it's, it's, well, you know, they don't, call them, they don't call them ethical dilemmas for nothing, right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, ethical yeah. dilemmas really are this place where like there's a good for an individual and there's a greater good. And I think mm. that's the big question here. And I don't think we've fully answered it. And I, I am actually wondering if it will take a case of an, of a greater good. Yeah. to change our perspective on this. And, you know, I'll use like an example of, you know, if if it turns out that the um, power that we have with AI allows us to solve problems that improve people's lives in a way that we couldn't without it, I think we might look at that greater good versus the individual good in a much different way. And I, I do think that is where the people who are, really investing in this technology. Like, I think that's what they think. Um, now it's a very, very fuzzy line, <laughs> right? Because you have to be very conscious not to move into what's called effective altruism, where you kind of forget that there are existing harms. And so kind of recognizing that in, in the short term, we need to be ethically conscious of how we source things and how we treat people and how we pay people and compensate them for their time. But at the same time, you know, recognizing that, you know, we might need in order to level up as humanity, right? We all might need to take a little step back from our American individuality and start doing <laughs> some things that are for the big picture. Yeah, I love that. And I think you've already started to to move down this pathway and speak to that, this already. But, you know, you're, you're teaching AI with that human touch. Talk to me more about that. How did that come to be? You know, how did you start to wrap your head around that? Because I think that is like the very essence of what I get excited about with AI is, yes, there's the possibilities of all things that AI can do and how that can can push the boundaries of, of, of human intelligence. But what I'm seeing, what I get excited about is it's also like exposing maybe the things that we have kind of overlooked in the human side of things. And I look at it through the education. I know there's that greater good of society at large that you're talking about. And it's like, you know, we haven't addressed some of these things. We, we've, we've maybe kind of overlooked them to focus on other things. And now AI is kind of going, hey, 
we need to yeah. go back and address some of the, these human elements. That's what I get excited about. So when I see your tagline, that's what hooked me. I'm like, tell me more about what this Lori lady is doing. So what what is that to you? How did that kind of come to fruition? Because because I have found that work to be incredibly insightful as I've been following your work. Yeah, well, I mean, I did have like a good six months to just kind of do things without having to put a label on it. And um and so in in those first six months of working with image generators, um, I in some ways kind of blogged my experience. And um, and again, like it wasn't really intending this to be the case, but it's a really nice, I've now had 52 weeks every Monday, I posted mid-journey Mondays. And I like just wrote stream of consciousness, like what I was doing, how I was using it. And, you know, and it was interesting to look back because there was definitely this moment when I moved you know, and there's like this thing called the Gartner hype cycle, right? Where mm. you're like, you know, super excited. And then you go through the trough of disillusionment. Well, my trough of disillusionment happened probably like three to four months in. And it was when I was trying to generate um, faces. So when Midjourney first came out, like you really couldn't generate a face. And in fact, most of the bodies would be turned backwards. Um, <laughs> so like I was working on fashion and like other kinds of things, but it wasn't photorealistic at all. Um, but when I tried to start representing diverse people, which, you know, I live in New York City and like I am part of a diverse community and I, I that's what I love about um, where I live and, and frankly, what I love about humanity. Yeah. Um, it was not easy. And, you know, I think that uh, coded implicit bias was just so obvious. And the first studies that I started doing, um, I was typing the prompt portrait of a woman. And I got a white woman 100% of the time. Right. And then if I wanted to generate a black woman, I needed to write black woman. If I wanted to generate someone of um, Southeast Asian descent, who I might call Indian, I couldn't say Indian, right? Because that was going to evoke Native American. And so what you what I started to realize was like just number one, how really imprecise and um biased our language is, right? Like that every word has loaded meanings. And yeah. um, you know, when you were like when your prompt is your method, right? And those words are everything, um, it they have power. And so that was really an eye opener. And then I think the second was, um, in fact, I was reading a book called White Women uh, at the same time, which is about um, kind of white privilege and, and, and racism and the way that white women, myself included, have contributed to that um, uh, bias. And the two experiences were just like aligning side by side. And I realized that the fact that we haven't used white to qualify a woman whose skin color is pale and from you know European descent um, is part of the problem, right? And we asked other people to put their own qualifiers on, right? But everybody should have a qualifier if some people are. And so you know this this was really the beginning of me starting to think about the human side of things. And and for me, I've always just um, thought ethics are not a separate practice, but they should be part of of all of us and part of, you know, the way that we view the world and, you know, try and do good in it. So I wanted, when I started teaching, I wanted that to be very much a part of my DNA. Mm. 
So I'm going to throw two questions out, and that's terrible interview protocol, but I'm, I'm pretty well known for that. So I'm thinking two layers. One is you're, as you're teaching that, how are you handling that in the classroom when right now, while we're trying to figure out how to increase student engagement, how we're trying to get kids, you know, excited about learning and, and get them, you know, seeing that school is relevant. And I think that's true no matter where we are. We're all, every school is trying to figure out, you know, how to keep kids hooked into that learning process. How are you navigating that when there's also lots of pressures and things we got to think about of what we can and can't do in the classroom? And maybe with that, or maybe it's separate, I'll let you figure out how you want to navigate that. In your 52 weeks of, of working through this, while we know there's still lots of improvement needs to be done in the in the bias of, of AI. Have you noticed any improvement in the systems over time as well? So maybe those are separate. Maybe they're all inclusive in terms of I'll let you kind of pick your your poison how you want to navigate that. But I'm I'm intrigued by both of those those, those areas for you. Yeah. So I, I decided early on in the teaching that I was going to use the bias as an opportunity, right? So instead of looking at it as like, oh, woe is us, right? AI has bias. Um, AI is a mirror onto human bias. So this is a great opportunity to move from talking about technology to talking about history, mm -hmm. right? And I love that because honestly, even with grownups, I'm not like, I'm really not here to teach AI tools. Everyone right. comes to me, right? That, that's what they pay me for. But like, we're here to, to learn a lot bigger things than that, right? Yes. So get the opportunity to use the tool as a way to teach us about our own problems. That to me is amazing. And I, I will tell you that there was um, a, a gentleman in my network who like in those early days was also trying to prompt to generate a conference room um, of diverse individuals. And he shared his experience about trying to prompt for that. And, you know, he had the same experience as me. You put like a boardroom uh, and you, you get a group of white men. <laughs> Right. Mm -hmm. Like this is yeah. no surprise to anybody. Right. And so, you know, he's trying to mitigate that bias by changing his language and then and then shipping what we like call when you put your work out in the world. Right. At that moment, you own it. Right. You own the rights and the responsibilities to that. So um, he was trying to ship something that like represented diverse people. And then he said, like, this was how challenging it was to come up with this image. And I'm like, so what lesson can we take from that about how challenging it is to get in the room, right? Like this mm. is about more than just the bias of AI. This is about the bias of society, right? And so if that's the conversation that we can have, and if a picture can help us to see that, I really see that as the power of art, right? Art mm. has been all forms, whether it's literature or, or music or theater, right? It's all been about giving us that lens to view our own humanity and to take that moment to look and to see and to see how that will change us. So I just like, I take that perspective. We're going to acknowledge its imperfection and we're going to use it to try and get better. Now, have the systems gotten better? Yes, they have. Not nearly as quickly as I would have liked, but I think more people talking about it, more people actively, you know, you can vote your images up or down when you're working in Midjourney. Um, 
And same thing with ChatGPT, you don't get a response you like, you get a response that's biased. You can also, you can speak your mind and you can vote. Um, and those are our responsibilities. So I think we are moving the dial. The other thing I also think is that coded bias is hard to get rid of in terms of humanities bias, but it's easier to correct in machines because you just need to teach the machine the right thing right mm -hmm. and then it can replicate so we need to be able to see it in order to change it but then once we can see it i do think we have a tremendous amount of power with ai to make a difference man i just love your thought process as you work through this stuff and so you know as as you have your learner hat on and you're navigating through mid-journey or you're navigating through i love your your just approach of thinking through seeing this, uh, you know, in, in, in the terms of mid-journey as art to mere society to have these conversations about, you know, not just how do we improve the AI models, but how do we improve humanity for the better, you know, by using these as as leverages or levers to to ignite those conversations and awareness. You know, what is your learning process? Like, take us through, a yeah. if you're able to articulate it, sometimes we're not always sure how to do that. Because there's there's so many people that when when I'm having these conversations with, they're always like, I don't know how to get started. And I love what you said earlier that it's like, they're always like, well, give me the tools. So it's like, well, that's, I don't think that's really what you're asking. I just don't think we're quite sure how to frame what it is we want. And what, we, what we're really trying to figure out is like, what are the possibilities? Like, how do I immerse myself with it? Not like I need 10 new shiny tools, but like that. It's kind of like the the low floor ceiling that yep. we've done over and over again in any technology immersion in education forever, you know? So talk talk me through, if you're able to, how do you, I know you've got your newsletter. I know that's probably one way just to get those things out, but how are you crafting these, these thought processes? Because my brain is just like exploding with like, oh, that's so smart. That's so <laughs> good. Um so I want to learn. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I mean we're 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 in a brain explosion exploding time right now. Um, so yeah, I, my brain hurts on a regular basis, <laughs> and I definitely need to start like finding and meditation probably yeah. my, like, need to do more often. Um, finding ways of relaxing my brain. Um, so you know, I'll talk about my learning process, but I think what I've also learned is that like I everybody has a different learning right stuff, right right so. Um, so I am a self-learner and I love to start with a problem that I want to solve and really use the problem as a way to learn what I need to do in order to solve it. So um, I'll take an example. Um, I was super frustrated because I am um, a member of an organization and I can't get a CSV file easily. <laughs> of the people who attend my talks, right? And there's no like tech that was out there that could do this for me. And so I initially started with, I really wanna build a scraping app that will allow me to get this like information and put it into an Excel file. Now, I will tell you, I still have not solved that problem for, for probably good reasons. Like it might be illegal for me to do what I want to do, but <laughs> it was the gateway to get me to start teaching myself how to code in Python. And I haven't coded since I was in the fourth grade, 
I learned basic and I learned how to do pixel art. And I like, was like my one and only time that I made it to the science fair. Um, and then after that, you know, what happened and this is like the early eighties is girls were not encouraged to study computer science. I had no idea that was even a career that one could have, right? Not on my radar screen. Um, so I, you know, I've never learned how to code and I've always seen it as this thing that like, really intelligent people do that's like beyond me but chat gpt like you can pretty much teach yourself anything mm -hmm. and it's like you know pretty good at, at writing basic code and it's really good at giving you instructions for how to do things that you might want to do um so i'm like you know what i'm going to give this a whirl now i did it also with like a very good friend who does this as a professional as somebody that i could like bounce my you know my ideas off of and also make sure that i wasn't going to like you know shut down my computer <laughs> or, or like invite a buyer right like so i had to put some guardrails on myself um but you know i learned how to get a python environment up on my computer i learned how to write the hello world program which is like the first thing you do as a you yep, know and yep. student right um i think i did like a mad libs thing after that um and so you know i just started and like over i think about 8 hours you know broken up over time i knew enough about python that i could start doing more sophisticated things Right. So in one of my newsletter series, I um, I really wanted to have some language tools that I could use to analyze social media posts. And so, again, I like, used ChatGPT to help me figure out how to write a sentiment analysis, how to write a um, readability analysis. Right. How to like, you know, import these into uh, an extension. Right. So, I mean, this is wild to me. Right. Yes, and right. And like, I'm not a super learner. Like I, in fact, I think part of what makes me a good learner and maybe a good teacher is that I need things to be simple. And so I seek out of complexity, I seek simplicity. So and like, I like to find analogies and, you know, ways of describing things that are easy for people to understand. Um, and you know, again, like I love the fact that I can upload a really complicated um, computer science article that would have been beyond my legibility, right? Because it's filled with jargon. Not that I couldn't understand the logic of it, but I just don't know the meanings of those like specific terms that you would know in that industry. But I can download it into ChatGPT or Claude or whatever your like large language model of the day is. And I can ask questions and probe it and get to a point where I can comprehend. Mm. Right. And I think this is like the great equalizer. And I, I, in that way, you know, when we're kind of talking, balancing out greater goods versus Im immediate um, uh, problems, like those are the greater goods to me. Right. If, if, Every individual, no matter what age you are, has the ability to self-educate and has access to the same technology to like level up the baseline. Right. Yeah, it's so as, as you're talking, it is it resonates on so many levels too, because I'm sitting there, you know, that's probably one of the biggest things where if I'm working with groups of people or whoever it might be for the first time. You know, sometimes they don't always get the best results and it comes out to like, but what, 
let's identify exactly what you said, the problem that you're after. And if we can't articulate that, these tools and these large language models, they're not mind readers, not at this point of the recording. You know, like we have to be able to articulate the idea. We don't have to know how to do the thing. That's why we're going to leverage these opportunities and these, these data sets to help us learn but we have to at least be able to articulate what it is we're after. And I think that is just like the thing that I'm a huge proponent. I mean, even outside of AI and education is like inquiry-based learning, project-based learning, authentic learning is helping people for so long. We've always provided the problem, you know, in schools, here's the problem. Kids now give an answer. And now I think part of this is like helping educators and students learn like, how do we identify that a problem is a problem? And then let's go about trying to find a solution. And this AI is, is it's it's opening up some of those. I'm seeing parallel conversations start to happen. Like, yeah, we can't articulate that. Well, this is not also an AI issue. This is the things that we need to be doing yeah. with our students because yeah, yeah, yeah. this is what the generation and society needs to be thinking about. How do we yeah. start to wrap our head around issues and problems that maybe we haven't thought about or we've glossed over for a long period of time? Yeah, I mean, there are two things that you said, and I'll, I'll I'll give you an immediate example of something that's like on my mind, and then then we can talk about um, uh, mind reading. Yeah. Um. So the immediate example is, you know, I have a lot of people approach me who want to figure out how to build AI into their enterprise systems, right? And you know, the first obvious solution is customer service, right? Building a chat bot is like easy as pie now. And you can like grossly improve the communication from where we were a year ago, right? Where like we all went on chat bots and it was just like, (laughs) like effort and futility. Talk to a live person, please talk to a live person. (laughs) Exactly. Representative, representative. (laughs) All right. So this week I, um, I found out that I could offer my classes with a financing model through PayPal, right? Which would be a huge advantage to my students because many people come to me, they're in transition in their career. So they have time on their hands, but they don't necessarily have immediate resources, right? And PayPal offers a six month financing program where you can sign up, I get paid right away. So I get to pay my bills and the student taking my class can for six months not have to pay and then set up a payment plan. And if they, you know, if they want to um, extend it, then there's a, a reasonable interest rate. So I really wanted to offer this to my students. I am now on like day six or seven with customer service. They call it the solution center. This is what I love, right? Or the resolution, the resolution center. Resolution center. Like day seven with the resolution center. <laughs> And the crux of the problem is this. I have a sole proprietorship and I file my taxes like 69% of the businesses in the United States without an EIN, okay? Pass-through business, like most sole proprietors like myself use the structure. PayPal does not have that option, right? Hmm. In the drop-down menu, And, you know, when they ask me to, like, prove that I'm a business, I can't give them any of the documentation that they're asking for because I don't have it because that's not how my business works. But 
we all know that that you know is not necessarily how, <laughs> right. how the state or the or the federal government views this, right? So seven days talking with customer service representatives who are all so kind, so well-meaning, so well-intentioned. And I'm like putting on my kindness hat and really, really trying not to lose my temper. Um, but I'm like at my wits ends, right? Because every single time I'm communicating with them and I get the answer, well, we're going to escalate this for you. And we put it in a system and our back office, I am like dying to see the back office. Do the people in the back office not have a telephone? <laughs> I, like, is there a reason why I cannot talk to the person at the time that they are looking at my document and explain it? So long story short, like there's no AI that's going to fix this, mm. right? We have not empowered the humans to do the human touch thing. So my my message, and I think it's like, whether you're in education or you're in customer service in a big corporation, it's all the same. It's like, how do we use AI to help us do the things that it would do best? So for example, in that scenario, AI would be able to tell us what the laws are that apply to my business so that somebody sitting there could very quickly do the research and pull this up and then get a quick answer of how to solve the problem. Like, if it's not this kind of business, what kind of documents could we accept from this person, right? Yeah. And then they could do the human touch thing, which is to help me solve my problem. But instead, we've put the humans in the place of being robots, right? We take away all their power. And those folks, I feel terrible because all they're doing is sitting there trying to talk me down from a ledge. Yeah. Right. And so I think that's really and I think like with education, it's the same thing. Like, what can we give our teachers so that they can be as human as possible in the classroom? Right. Like leveraging all of their skills. Right. Instead of having to, like, work on the bureaucratic tasks that trip us up. Yeah. I mean, that's where I've been spending a lot of my time lately is as we start to introduce what this means for us in the education space. And it's, I, th I think it's no different in any other industry sector is how do we reduce, I'll say time, cause that seems to make more sense visually, but what I'm really in my brain trying to wrap my head around is how do we reduce the amount of like cognitive load that we spend on those bureaucratic, uh, the managerial type tasks that do take up time in a day that is, like low level threshold work. Yes. yes, it needs to be done. No one likes to do it, but we spend a crazy amount of time documenting, sorting, manually and entering data, whatever those things might be. Yes. That when it, if we do have a small amount of wiggle room for deeper thought or human relations or the things that really, really do matter that also help avoid burnout and actually make us enjoy our job and our work, we're not exhausted. And by the time we get there, most of the time we're like, I'm just so tired. I can't do this right now. It's like, let's, let's push some of that stuff off or, or yeah. expedite the process. And now we've got more cognitive power to do the things of like, why we got into the work we, we, we got into in the first place, whether that's education or something yeah. else. And it's like, we can, we can remove now with technology, we can remove some of that bogged down feeling yeah. so we can do more of what we actually enjoy doing. And yeah. that is where I've been trying to figure out 
okay, where are these case studies and how do I start to formulate some of these things to help people think through, like, that's where we need to be. Less time thinking about what's it mean for students and this and that, and all that stuff is important, but like, how do we, <laughs> yeah. we're losing our workforce. We're, we're, we got burnout issues. We got yeah. people not enjoying jobs. Like we need to fix that. And the other things yeah. will, you know, we can work on in, 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 in tandem. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I, you know, I advise people to like, you know, look at your, look at your job, right? Because most people probably have about seven jobs. They are doing <laughs> yeah. a job of like seven people, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah. And it only right? goes up every year. It feels like. So, you know, look, look at all of your work and, you know, holistically across your, your work and, and family responsibilities. And, you know, what are the, what are the top three things that you love doing most, right? Because those are the things that even if you can do them with AI, you shouldn't. Yes. Right. Um, find the place where you find your joy and your, you know, your passion and your interest and, um, and put those at the top and then everything else, right. Figure out ways that you can help yourself automate or systematize or, you know, tap into the power of AI to amplify what you're already able to do yourself. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. The things you love, you know, you, you want to make sure you, you continue to experience those, yes. <laughs> you know, yeah. and it's how do we offload those things that were just kind of like, oh, I got to do this again. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. exactly. Well, I want to, I want to be respectful of your time. I know, we, man, I could just continue to talk to you uh, forever. We've got like a million questions. But, you know, as as we're at the time of this recording, and we'll make sure we get this out live for, for people to uh, partake and enjoy, because I think you you're definitely have, have sparked some excitement and some new ways of thinking through AI and really just humanity at, at large. You have a book coming out on top of all the other things you're doing, writing newsletters and teaching and speaking and being the CEO of your work and good no lord knows what else you've got going on you've also found time to to write a book so tell me a little bit about this because i'm excited i know i'm going to be buying a copy but what's the book about what are some things you have going uh because i i, I know these, these listeners are going to want to know about it yeah um no i'm so excited about this it's like definitely been on my bucket list for a long time um the book is called temperature creativity in the age of ai um, it is a book that I started writing over 10 years ago when I was a business school student studying game theory at Stern um, at NYU. Uh, I was really interested in the relationship between rules and creativity. And, you know, in my work practice, I was um, working with a lot of architects and I was on the client side. And so I was like managing creatives. Right. And and this is always a challenge. And I feel like, you know, I, I was kind of like drinking my own Kool-Aid at the time. Um, <laughs> but, you know, I found that when I would give a creative brief, people who were like super creative, like was it was the days of like think outside the box. Right. Or like break it and, you know, fix it later. Um <laughs> And I was like, wait, but like, we're building a box. Like we, we really need to be, be creative, like with inside the box. And so, you know, architecture is all about this like balance between structure and um, serendipity. So I you know this was just like very, very 
fresh in my mind. And I started putting together a taxonomy of rule systems um, from recipes to improvisations, prohibitions, and um, chants. And uh, I like tested it for like 10 years, um, you know, not in a scientific way, but just kind of like, does this theory really hold? But I never... I could never really figure out like what the story was, right? Mm. And like what would make it an interesting book. And then when I started working with AI, the light bulb went off because there is a parameter called temperature in AI systems, which is like a dial. Um, and the reason I call them chaos machines is like basically you have billions of parameters of data that you're sampling and you're sampling it with a damper. So if you set the temperature high, your damper is wide open and you're going to get a very, very random response. And if you narrow it down, you're going to get a more and more precise response. And this is a very different way of thinking than I think we have ever thought before. Um, computer science before generative AI was about binaries. It was about zeros and ones and making a series of zero and one choices to get you to a prediction. Right. But this works totally differently. And this is exactly how the human brain works with creativity. Right. And what I wanted people to understand, the reason why I'm so passionate about this book is that creativity is all of it. It's not just the high, the high temperature end of the spectrum. Right. It's the whole spectrum. And Anybody who in, you know engages in a creative process knows that you like experience different parts of that along the way. Yeah. So that's the story. That's the book. And um, and you know, there's like lots of good uh, you know, family history and personal nuggets in there to keep people <laughs> entertained along the way. <laughs> I love it. I think that one, I mean, congratulations. It's it's no small feat to to write a book. And as you're describing it, it just reminds me, I was just on LinkedIn. Uh, with some other uh, friends of mine and, and one of them just shared a stack of her favorite books about creativity. Uh, and uh, so I know we'll have to, when the book comes, oh yeah. comes to be like, <laughs> Oh, we might have to take, take a new picture here. We might have some, some new reading to do. And uh, so, yeah, so, so excited. And so you've got a pre-launch coming up in the month of October yeah. and then the, and then make sure for those that are listening also know when the book will, will be out yeah. and, and, and available. Yep, absolutely. Um, so the pre-launch is uh, the month of October. I'll be launching my website where you can buy tickets to a launch party, either in person or virtually. You get a copy of my book signed um, and delivered to your home. You can like choose artwork if you want to um, buy that as well. And all of that funds my ability to both keep teaching classes and do, do as much pro bono work as I would like to and also publish the book and get out on a book tour in the spring. Um, the book comes out on March 7th, and I'm super excited. Yes, as you should be. And so in the meantime, so as people are signing up for that and, and, and or waiting for the, the book to come out in March, I know we've mentioned LinkedIn, and I'll definitely put your profile in the in the show notes as, as people who have listened know that. And I would highly encourage them to not just follow you, but also to follow your newsletter so that you can get uh, all your insights that come every, every Monday. But, you know, are there any other places if people want to learn more about you, follow your work? I'm assuming, I don't want to speak on your behalf, LinkedIn is is probably the the main hub to to see the kind of daily interactions. But if there's other places, I want to make sure that people get a chance to know about that. And again, we'll link that in the show notes so people can uh, check that out. 
Yeah, no, I make LinkedIn my one-stop shop because honestly, like in the um, conservation of energy, I'm putting my all my eggs in one social basket. Um, so feel free to like share what I share on LinkedIn widely, but it's the one place I am consistently. Um, and then I do, uh, I do do a lot of speaking engagements. So when I do speak in public places where it's open um, and that either there are tickets or it's free, I try and put that out there. I'm going to be in... Um, uh, Florida at the Immerse Global Summit next um, in mid-October um, for anybody who's in the southern region or um, wants to be part of that community. That's awesome. Lori, this has been such an enlightening conversation. Again, I could sit here and continue to chat with you all day, but we both know you've got a probably a million other things to go get to in, in, in your workday and then move on and all your creation and learning and exploring. So I can't thank you enough for taking time to be on the show. I also can't thank you thank you enough for taking time to just share your learning journey with all of us on on LinkedIn and and allowing us an insight into your process. And I continue to gain new things, and I hope others will will continue to to join and follow along and and add you to their network because it's just another great voice to have as we're all trying to process what this all means in the AI landscape and more importantly, what it means to be a good human. And, and you've, you've definitely struck a good balance trying to uh, push our thinking in, in, in both of those spheres. So I appreciate all that you do and uh, I wish you the best success and uh, keep doing what you're doing. Oh, thank you. Thank you for holding this forum. Yes, absolutely. Woke up at six o'clock in the morning, chilling with coffee mugs, me and coffee chugs, talking education all across the nation, pushing boundaries, thinking innovation. Chaos. <laughs>